Well, guys, please read with me in 2 Peter, starting in verse 3. As you know, the conference is all about the promises of God. And so let's read together. 2 Peter chapter 1, and this is in, starting in verse 3. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let's just pause there. We're going to look at these verses uh, tonight and, and, and some of their implications. And um, I, I felt, I feel like, especially as I was preparing these messages, one thing that would be helpful before we, you know, kicking off this conference, trying to get ready, uh, I know I'm, I'm going to preach five more messages after this. And I, and I want all five of those. We're going to look at the promises of God in those five. And, and I want all five of those to land on your heart profoundly. Because what Peter is telling us here is that it is through these promises that we became, this, this is just amazing, this is shocking. Through those promises, we become partakers of the divine nature. I'll be honest, I don't exactly know what that means. Just be totally brutally honest. I don't, I don't know exactly what he means by partakers of the divine nature, but I know it's good, okay? I know it's a really, really good thing. And that's going to happen when we are partaking and hearing with faith uh, these precious and very great promises that we're going to cover these next five messages. And so my hope is to use this first message to posture our hearts in such a way where we're hungry, where we're eager to hear these promises. Okay, that's, my, that's kind of my hope. That's where we're going with this first message. And so I think... Um, I think the question that uh, needs to be asked, especially in our technological age, is do we really need more preaching? Right? We're here to rest. You guys are students. You have people teaching you all day, every day. You're in lecture halls, you know, uh, uh, hours and hours, Monday through Friday. You have teachings at midweek on Thursday. You have teachings on Sunday. You probably have teachings at men and women's group. You have teachings sometimes in Bible studies. Not only that, you can go to Spotify and, and you can look at podcasts and you can have some of the greatest teachers in the world teach you God's word. Or you can jump onto Amazon and this is stunning. We shouldn't let how amazing what I'm about to say <laughs> slip by us. This is stunning. We can get onto Amazon and for almost no money, we can buy the greatest books ever written in church history, have them arrive at our door in two days. And we can, we can have knowledge and teaching flooding our minds and our hearts in a way that pastors and godly men for the last 2,000 years would give up their house to have half of the access to information you know, know that we have today. Do we really need more preaching? You know what, right? I, I think it's a valid question. I don't know, um, I don't know about you. I think it's a, a question that we, ought, that we ought to ask. Is this what we need? And, and profoundly, resoundingly, my answer is yes. Yes, we need more preaching. We need more and more and more preaching. Why is it? Why do we need more preaching? Why do I say that? I'm going to defend that statement in this whole message. I'm going to try to convince you of that statement in this message. And, I, and my prayer and hope is that you would leave here hungry for more preaching. That you'd be hungry for the next five messages because you're hungry for God to speak to you. 
Why do we need more preaching? Well, let's, let's look at 2 Peter. Hopefully you're still there. Look at me again here. His divine power, this is verse 3, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through what? Where do those things come? Where does everything we need for life and godliness come? It comes through the knowledge of him who called us. Knowledge is always conveyed by words, by language, right? Almost always. You could see a picture and that's a kind of knowledge. But the knowledge of his son, he is the logos, he is the word. It is communicated to us through words, right? And then again in verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Once again, how do we receive those promises? How are they delivered to us? Those promises, again, are delivered to us through words. But those promises and that knowledge is uh, absolutely useless if it's not joined with faith, right? I could promise you until I'm blue in the face that I will give you $100. And if you don't believe me, (laughs) you know what I mean? You're not going to stick out your hand. You're not, you're not going to receive that. It's going to be worthless to you, right? Unless I take it and I shove it in your pocket or something, right? Uh, uh, the promise is only effective if it is joined with faith. Just like the knowledge of Christ is only effective if it is joined with faith. You can have a certain kind of knowledge that doesn't lead to salvation. That's not joined with the kind of resting and receiving Christ that leads to your salvation, Faith is the thing that uh, is necessary, right? It's not actually just more information. It's not more information. It's actually more faith. And here's what we need to know about faith. We need to know that we are in a war daily. Okay, we're in a war. So in Ephesians 6, it's a very famous chapter, right? In Ephesians 6, he lays out what the armor of God is. And you guys remember, what, what is the thing, what is the shield that quenches all the fiery darts of the evil one? What is that? It's the shield of faith. Good. The shield of faith quenches all of them, all the fiery darts, all of his schemes, all of his wiles, all of his attacks. Every single one of them can be quenched by the shield of faith. Now, if I were to get into a fight... Okay, which has only happened like once in my life. And that wasn't even a real fight. Okay, but I'm digressing. Anyway, if I were to get into a fight and, and, and I really needed to win that fight, okay, and that person uh, ha- was armed, okay, they had something to defend themselves, it would be of utmost importance to me that I disarm them, that I remove that protection from them. If I am armed and they have no protection, I- I'm going to win that fight. 100%, right? I- I- I'm going to win that fight. Before I even launch into attacking you, my goal will probably be to disarm you so that my attacks are more effective, right? If I have that much wisdom, okay, how much more a being that's existed for I don't know how long in Satan, right? Your armor is faith, which means we have a real enemy, we're in a real war, and it would be wise of him to do everything he can to just, here, let me just take that shield from you here, right? Let me, let me have that, let me borrow that, give that to me. In other words, you, you come to Christ through faith. It is through faith that you come to Christ, receiving those promises, receiving that knowledge. But then it doesn't, your need for faith, it doesn't end as soon as you're saved. You have a real enemy and his goal is to continually decrease your faith, right? Have you ever tasted that? Like, have you ever, I don't know, maybe... Uh, maybe I'm crazy. Have you ever tasted something like that? Let me tell you a story to illustrate this, okay? So I can remember um, I, was, I was just married to my wife, and she was wrestling with assurance of salvation. That was something that she wrestled with for many years. 
And um, I was not the most compassionate and kind and patient husband. And, and once again, she was expressing her doubts and her despair, and it was just so heavy. You know? Like, I don't know if somebody has, you know, just expressed a lot of really hard, heavy things to you often, but it, it can be heavy to hear that all the time, right? And so I was just hearing her say this again. I was preaching the gospel to her again, and, and then I walked away, and I was really frustrated. I was like, why can't you just believe these promises? Why can't you just believe it? God's word says it, just believe it. This is what Jesus says. It's not that hard, believe it. Why are we always in this place of doubt? And I went, I remember I was taking a shower. I'll never forget it. And it, and it struck me, this thought just struck my mind. I was like, could all of the animals really fit in that ark? <laughs> you know? The whole world was flooded? Above the mountains? That's a lot of water. Six days? This whole world was made in six days, right? It, it, you know, what was happening? There were more, more things than just that. My mind was flooded with doubt. I, I look back on that, and I think what was happening is God was rebuking me, as he was humbling me. Um, you know, I, I, I believe that faith is a gift from God and that we're upheld by his power through faith, is what 1 Peter says, and that, that God was convicting me. But in that moment, I was assailed. Right? I was assailed with doubt. And I felt my foundation kind of, kind of crumbling there. And I, I, it was terrifying. Right? It was terrifying. I don't know if you've ever had one of these existential crises about your faith. Probably most of us have had moments like that and we just don't talk about it. Or we have a lot of doubts. Could this be real? Did this really happen? Is the Bible really trustworthy? Did, did, did these things happen? We have these doubts. Why do we have these doubts? We have these doubts because we have a real enemy. And if he, can, uh, if he can remove our faith, if he can put cracks in our foundation, if he can take away that shield, if he can insert doubt, uh, then we're suddenly in a very precarious position, right? We are defenseless. We don't have the shield of faith against an enemy that hates our souls. That's terrifying, right? Like if you think on that for a little while, that is terrifying. You have an enemy that wants you to spend an eternity in hell. And the only thing between you and him is a shield of faith. And when that goes, you go. You've got no chance. <laughs> you can't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with this enemy. And now I need you to listen to me, Christians. Please listen to me. There is a kind of teaching in the world right now, and it's gaining popularity right now, that says that doubting, is an honest and good thing. Okay? Do you, I don't know if you've noticed this. I'm starting to hear more of it. But the kind of person that has doubts, there's, there's almost a kind of person nowadays that, that almost boasts in their doubts. They feel more authentic if they have doubts. They feel more honest if they have doubts. They feel like if they are communicating these doubts and, and, and almost clinging to these doubts, it makes them an authentic person. They're not like those Christians that pretend to have faith. They're honest. They uh, express their doubts. There's a kind of teaching in the world that says that doubt is actually a good thing. And, and I just want to plead with you tonight. I, I want to plead with you that that is a lie from the pit of hell. I want to plead with you tonight, not against honesty and confessing your doubt. That's, okay, I think that can be really helpful. To just, but, but what we need to know is when we're confessing that doubt, we're confessing a kind of sin. 
right? We're confessing a kind of not trusting God, not trusting his word, not believing his promises, not believing what he's done. When we're uh, saying that it really is a confession, right? It really is something wrong with us that we need God to fix, not something that we are to be proud of. Uh, that, you know, throughout Christian history and throughout the scriptures, faith is always upheld as a virtue and doubt is always cast down as something that is the opposite of a virtue. Faith is godly. Faith is essential. Faith leads to joy. Faith leads to hope. Faith leads to life and peace and love. Faith is essential. This is what 1 Peter 1.5 says. He says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Who's guarding us? God is. God's power. And we are being guarded through what? Through faith. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation. Sorry, ready to be revealed um, in the last time. And and so here's... um, Uh, so here's what I've seen. I've been, I was just talking with Caleb a second ago. He was telling me this is his 19th winter conference. Caleb, way to go, man. Caleb, 19. Well done. Uh, and I asked him, I was like, do you include faith walkers in that? And if you don't know what faith walkers is, don't worry about it. And he was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Including faith walkers. And I was thinking, okay, this is my 12th then. This is my 12th winter conference. Okay. And in those 12 years, I, I just want I, I just really want to drive home this point that what I'm talking about is not a game. In those 12 years, I have seen brothers and sisters that I was running hard after Christ with uh, fall away and no longer walk with Christ, like many times. Like, I I remember I was in an apartment building, I was in an apartment complex with some guys, and and everything seemed to be going well. And then one day, these two guys, they kind of had this coming out of the closet thing. They came out and they're like, hey, by the way, um, we don't believe in hell. Okay, I don't know if you guys have heard of Rob Bell. They were reading his books. They were going through, the, and they weren't talking about it. They didn't tell anybody, but they had these doubts about heaven and these doubts about the authenticity of the scriptures. They had these doubts that were going on, and then all of a sudden it came out that this is what they were thinking about, and now those guys are no longer walking with the Lord, as far as I know. And I could tell you more and more and more stories about this. The people that you're sitting in the room with right now, there's no guarantee, apart from God's word, and that they have a genuine faith that he will guard them and he will keep them. Uh, but... but <laughs> There's just a real battle going on, is what I'm trying to say. There's a real war for your soul, and faith is really the thing that is going to guard you and that is going to protect you. And, and, and how does God, okay, how does God guard us through faith? How does he do that? The historic Protestant position on this, okay? The historic Protestant position of how are we guarded through faith is that God gives faith, that it's a gift from God. And that he gives it primarily through two things. Primarily by, through taking the Lord's Supper, which that'll be another conversation that we can have another winter conference maybe, okay? Taking the Lord's Supper, and the other is through the preached Word of God. The preached Word of God, and this is what I'm so anxious to share with us tonight, okay? This is what I'm, so, I'm really anxious for us to lean in. The preached Word of God is not a teaching only. It's not only a teaching. You should not think of this as only an information transfer. The preached word of God, if we understand what it has been throughout history, is actually the means by which God declares his word to his people, and then he gives them faith in order for them to endure and be strengthened and stand in the promises and knowledge of God's word. 
Okay, does that make sense? In these very great and precious promises, in the knowledge of him who has called us, those things become effective when they're joined with faith and faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. And that happens through historically preaching the gospel. Does that make sense? Okay, if, if that's our understanding of what happens in preaching, that God actually gives faith and that faith is essential then we ought to be hungry for more preaching. Does that make sense? And what the second thing it ought to do is it ought to lead us to have a correct posture to hear preaching. When you come here, I don't actually want you to just be thinking about what can I learn? <laughs> that's fine, that's good, right? Uh, you wanna take notes, you're a note taker, that's awesome, take notes, okay? I love that, it means you're listening, you're paying attention, but, but there's something more significant that you should be asking God to be doing. When you sit in that seat and you open God's word and you read it, you should pray for me this weekend, okay? And the other thing you should do is you should pray that God grants you faith through the preaching of the word. You should be like somebody that is hungry for his word. Uh, you know, gosh, are you despondent, Christian? I'm just being like, like, do you have doubts in your heart and your mind that you haven't told anybody about? H how are you doing? Be honest. Like, are you encouraged? Are you exhausted? Are you worn out? Are you on the edge? Do you have secret doubts? Do you have secret sin? Are you thriving in the Christian faith? If the answer is no, then what you need more than ever is faith. And it's actually a matter of life and death. It, it's, it's not insignificant at all. Your eternity, so to speak, hangs in the balance. And what that should drive us to do is with pleading hearts, with tears in our eyes, say, God, I, I believe, help my unbelief every time God's word is open to be preached. Because that is the means by which God has been pleased throughout history to grant faith to Christians. Haven't you experienced that? Oh, I hope you've experienced this, Christian. I've experienced this. I hope you've experienced this. Have you ever experienced it? You've had it. You're sitting there and you're hearing the preached word of God and it's almost like God is just speaking right to you. You know, like maybe some of you are having that right. I hope some of you, by God's grace, are having that experience even right now. You just know, you know God is speaking to me. This is what I needed to hear. This fits my situation, right? Like you want to go talk to the pastor and say, hey, did you read my text messages? <laughs> How, how did you know that's the exact, what was happening there? And you leave, you're encouraged, you feel like the sun shines a little brighter, the trees are more magnificent, the birds sound a little sweeter, you're just filled with faith, you can take a deep breath for the first time, it feels like in months, what's happening there? God is blessing you by filling your heart with faith in his promises. I hope that's happened to you. Oh man, if you sit under the kind of preaching that's boring and weak, and ineffective, which I don't think we do in campus fellowship, praise God. If you sit under that kind of preaching, though, you know, you know what it's like to be hungry to be fed God's word in a way that feeds your soul with faith, right? And I just think sometimes when we're around good teaching and good preaching, we can take this for granted and we can stop crying out to God. But can, can, can we just, this weekend, can we settle it in our souls that before every session, before we look at these very great and precious promises of God, we're going to humble ourselves and we're going to lift our eyes to heaven and we're going to say, God, I don't just want to learn here. I don't need more facts. I'll buy a book if that's what I need. God, I'm desperate. I need more faith. Would you help me with my unbelief? If you'll do that and then you'll lean into the preached 
proclaimed, spoken word of God, I think what you'll find is this, this route uh, through the slow of despond. Here's what I mean by that. John Bunyan was a, a Puritan uh, author. And if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, can I get a little participation? Is that okay? Can you raise your hand if you've read Pilgrim's Progress? All right, amen. My people, good. Okay, put your hands down. Amen. Do you remember? If you haven't, go read it. All right, I hope you feel ashamed to go read it. Okay, go read it. It's, an, it's amazing. It's an amazing book. And right at the very beginning, uh, John Bunyan, he has Christian going on this, he's going on his, you know, his pilgrimage to the celestial city. And what, what happens right at the beginning? He flees from the city of destruction, life, life, eternal life. And then where does he find himself? Bam, smack middle in the slow of despond. He's just dying there, right? His buddies leave him. <laughs> he feels like he's not making any progress in the faith. Yeah, I should be more mature by now, right? Do you feel that? Why am I so apathetic to the promises of God? Why is my prayer life feel so dead? Because you're in the slow of despond. And he languishes there. And then evangelist has to come and pull him out. And he shows him, oh, look, by the way, there were these stepstones. And you never had to languish in the slow of despond. And those stepstones, they're called the promises of God. The promises of God. And what we are going through these next five weeks are stepstones through the slow of despond to strengthen your faith, to give you grace, to help you, to, to bolster your courage, and hopefully lead you to rest in the finished work of Christ. But they will only be steps if you, if you, if you combine those promises with faith. And faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. Let me, let me just tell you a couple stories here, um, in, just in order to encourage us. Uh, and encourage us to hear. Um, let, let, let's start with a biblical story. Let's start with Abraham and Sarah. I think sometimes it's just so encouraging to see people doubt, okay? <laughs> I think sometimes it's so encouraging to see people doubt because it makes me say, okay, I'm not crazy. You know, I'm not insane. <laughs> I'm not the only weak one in the room. And Abraham, even though he is called the man of faith, and his wife, Sarah, even though Hebrews 11 says that she uh, did not waver in the promises, but grew strong by faith and was able to become pregnant in her old age and bear Isaac, there are some markers of the patience and kindness of God to continue to communicate his promises to them, even when they doubt the promises and even when uh, he's communicated to them for years and years and years. Some of you guys were raised in the church, right? Some of you guys are going to, and I'm not going to share a single new word with you for some of you, right? And once again, if all I'm doing is teaching, you guys should probably just go home. But if this is something where God is actually interacting and speaking through his word and blessing and strengthening your heart and filling you with faith, then don't go home. And here's what's wonderful and amazing about our God. This is what you want. This is what we're going to learn from the story of Abraham and Sarah here in a second, is that God is incredibly patient incredibly patient, especially with you who have heard these promises since day one, and yet you're still in the slow of despond. Oh, he's incredibly patient. He's incredibly kind. He's incredibly slow to anger. What do we see? Genesis 12, God calls Abram out, and in verse 2, he gives him the promise. He says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. He calls him out, and boom, he lays this promise on him. Every word of God, even if it has the word promise or not, is a promise if it's rightly understood and applied because God cannot lie. And so every statement from God's lips is, in a sense, a promise. 
if you understand and apply it correctly and if it ought to be applied to you. So Abraham gets the promise in Genesis 12, and then uh, a lot of time passes, and we get to Genesis 13, 16. Okay, he uh, screws up with his wife in Egypt. There's a moment of doubt. He tries to give her away and leave the land God called him to go to. Okay, and then he repents. He goes back to where he's supposed to go to, and he trusts God, and he gives Lot the land. And what do we see here in Genesis 13, 16? God, what does he do? He repeats the promise to him. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. What's he do? Throughout Abraham's life, God repeats the promise to him. And, and this, I, I don't want to bore you guys, but this is, this is a theme, right? Genesis 15, 5. Once again, Abraham lives a lot of life, sees some crazy things, kills a lot of people, makes a lot of money, gives that money away, meets a guy named Melchizedek, crazy stuff happening in his life. And then what do we see? Genesis 15, 5. What does God do? He repeats the promise. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Why does God have to say it again? He doesn't. It's enough for God to say it one time to Abraham and say, I'm God. I never lie. So believe me. And I'm, never, I, I'm not going to tell you twice. <laughs> that, that would, he'd be totally just in doing that. Why has he said it three times now? I'll give you a hint. It's not because God's weak. It's, it's because Abraham and Sarah wrestle with weakness, right? And so what do we see? We see God repeating the promise to him again in Genesis 15, 13. And then we see him repeating the promise again in Genesis 17, 6. And then what do we have? We have Abraham laughing when God gives him the promise and saying, I'm an old man, God. <laughs> and then he gives him the promise again. And what do we have? We have Sarah laughing now. Sarah says, shall I have pleasure when I'm old? What's going on? These people who have seen the faithfulness of God who have had God promise them again and again and again and again, still wrestle with doubt. Does that make sense? Okay, here's who I'm talking to. I'm talking to you who were raised in the faith. I don't know who you are. I'm talking to you who have heard these promises from day one. I'm talking to you who God has spoken to you again and again and again and again, and yet you know your joy isn't what it ought to be. Your life isn't what it ought to be. That if you could just take hold of these promises, everything would be great. But what you find is this weakness in this flesh and this Satan, this battle, this world that's battling against you. And so what do you need? You need the promises repeated to you again and again and again and again, just like Abraham did. And what is God doing in repeating those promises to you? He's condescending to your weakness. He, he knows that you're dust. He knows that you're a man. He knows your frame. He knows we live in a sin-soaked world. He knows we have an enemy of our souls. And, and so in his profound kindness, what does he do? He brings you over to himself and he tells you the promise again. And he tells you the promise again. And then he tells you the promise again. And I, and I think that's what God wants to do for some of us at this winter retreat. He wants to tell you the promises again. And every time you hear them, what you should be thinking and hearing is the mercy and kindness and grace of God. And if you're able to receive those with faith, what you should do is you should go and you should praise and worship God that he hasn't let go of you. 
that he's continued to hold you fast and guard you with power, with that shield of faith. If you're here, he's kept you, right? And if you're here, I think he wants to strengthen you. Let me tell you another story now. This is from church history. This is Martin Luther, the famous Protestant reformer. And if you go and you read Martin Luther's biography, I recommend Here I Stand by Roland Bainton. What you'll find is Martin Luther was a man well acquainted with doubt. Martin Luther was a man that was a priest. He was a Catholic, right? And, and um, I, I don't have tons of time, so I'll speed through the story. But basically, uh, some, a lightning bolt almost hit him. He cried out to St. Annie, save me. She was like a, 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 patron of, a patroness of minors. Save me. If you save me, I'll go into the monastery. He goes into the monastery, and he's the most vigilant uh, monk you know, there's like ever been. He almost kills himself with fasting. He confesses his sins for six hours a day. He sleeps outside in the cold. He's offering mass for the first time, and he really thinks it's Christ's body and blood, and he's so terrified about his sin in the presence of a holy God that he literally runs away. This dude is insane. It's Martin Luther, okay? And then he has this moment. He understands justification by faith as he's reading Romans. The light comes on for him, and he starts to preach and to teach these things. The Roman Catholic Church comes up and says, hey, that's not right. And Martin Luther has to decide, am I going to stand on this conviction that I think God has revealed to me in his word, which is that I am saved by faith in Christ alone? Or am I going to, am I going to continue in that system that held me captive and enslaved for years and years and years? And here's what he did. He stood firm in his convictions. And in so doing, he was basically saying, everyone else is wrong. Everybody else is wrong, right? And I alone am right. And you know what? If you go read his writings, he says Satan would often come and assail him and whisper in his ear and say, are you alone right? Are you that smart? You think everybody else has got it wrong for thousands of years? You know what you're saying, right, Martin Luther? You're saying all these people, lots of people at least are going to hell because they don't believe your doctrine? Really, Martin Luther, are you that wise? Are you the only one that's right? You're smarter than the Pope? You're smarter than these guys, really? And this is what Luther says about that. He says, for more than a week, I was close to the gates of death and hell. This is after his conversion experience. I trembled in all my members. Christ was wholly lost. I was shaken by desperation and blasphemy. He says that he was pushed on the brink of despair. He had such profound doubt about his own salvation and the truth of his doctrine that he was ready to give it all away and walk away. How did that man stand firm? <laughs> like young men, like just a brief caveat, right? Do you want to be famous? <laughs> Hopefully you say no. You want to lead a lot of people? Do you want to be a leader in the church? You want to lead your family? <laughs> With that comes a ton of pressure, man. A ton of pressure man, I better get this thing right. And with that pressure comes a profound opportunity for doubt, profound opportunity for Satan to attack him. And what, what did Martin Luther say? He says, when one is possessed with doubt, that though he call upon the Lord, he cannot be heard, that God has turned him and his heart away from him and is angry, he must arm himself with God's word. He must go and surround himself with friends and hear the preached word, is what Martin Luther says. He says the preached word is for such times as this. It's light breaking through the darkness. It's God strengthening your faith. It's God upholding you with the power of his hand. This has been the Protestant position since the Reformation, that it is through the preached word of God that he gives us faith. And so here's the question. Do we need more preaching? Here's what I would ask. If somebody asked me that question, John, do we really need more preaching today? Here what I, here's what I would do. Well, do we need more faith today? <laughs> 
Or do we just need more information today? Right? I think you'll all agree with me. The need of the hour is men and women of faith. I've met a lot of people that know a lot of things. But it's, it's, it's faith where the power is, right? It's faith that's in the need. It's faith that's going to lead you through the slow of despond. It's faith that's going to strengthen you. It's, it's faith that's going to give you uh, the power to operate. Let me just close here by reading Hebrews 11. This is what Hebrews 11, starting in verse 4. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch, when he was taken up, so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise and as, a, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith. Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeting them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he would receive the promises when the, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. 
By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. Are you kidding me? Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and the caves of the earth. Do we need more preaching? Well, do we need people like that today? I think so. And guys, I don't think we can get enough good preaching so long as it's accompanied with faith, right? The proclaiming of God's promise, the resting and receiving and clinging to those promises by the faith that God in his gracious mercy grants us will, will transform us, will lead us out of the slow of despond, will lead us to the kinds, be the kinds of people, I just can't even wrap my mind around this, that are tortured and refuse to accept release to gain a better reward in heaven? Are you kidding me? Most of us are scared about getting a B in one of our classes. Are you serious? Oh, man. I should probably wrap this thing up. I, I think I've made my point, right? Do we need more preaching? Should we really have six sessions? We should probably have seven or eight or nine or ten, right? That's my prayer, guys. That's, that's my hope. 